Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. It's one thing to bring together disparate cultures in a public celebration of their fine and culinary arts, but it's another thing to use those same events as a skills-building opportunity and help, say, non-native speakers obtain their business license or food handler's permit. Later in this episode, we'll hear about an organization that won Spokane Arts Grant Award funding to do just that, and they've already put it into practice. Right now, we're looking ahead to this weekend when the Cantabile chapter of the Spokane Symphony Associates hosts a vocal health workshop. It's designed to educate singers of all abilities and even teach them how they might recover after serious issues like illness or surgery. The need for vocal recovery isn't as uncommon as you might think. When I recently talked to Alex Barclay, a Spokane real estate agent and a lifelong singer, he told me how a routine surgery had negatively affected his most prized instrument. He's had to work for years to regain that essential part of his identity. As he explained, his life has involved singing ever since he can remember. Well, my, my grandmother was a uh, an organist for a church over in Coeur d'Alene, and so when the church choir would go away for the summer, she would bring in the grandkids and we would, would sing for church. So I got my, my start there in elementary school and have pretty much been singing ever since. Started some work with the, the Civic Theater early on. Uh, I was a mall in, a mall in the night visitors when I was a, a freshman in high school and that was several octaves ago. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I sing with the uh, the Spokane Symphony, and I've done that for the last 25 years, something like that. But uh, even through college, always involved. Uh, it was a, a music major, vocal performance major for the first couple of years down at the University of Idaho. And then I, I switched to schools and switched to a business major, but still had to seek out choral activity in, in the middle of a, of a business school. And uh, just something I've always held on to and kind of become one of the, uh, I guess, core pieces of my identity is, is as a singer. And so it has been more than a hobby, but not quite a profession? Yeah, I figured while I was kind of exploring things as a music major, I heard a lot about how when, when it comes time to make it a profession and that's how you're putting food on the table, a lot of the joy kind of leaves because... There's a lot more pressure and a lot more demand. And so it was something that I wanted to, uh, to keep as a hobby, but didn't want to have to rely on. And you have had illness. I mean, we were even talking as we were coming into the studio about how you'd been battling bronchitis recently. And of course, that affects your primary instrument and limits how much you're able to, to participate. And it's also incredibly frustrating, I'm sure, because you want to be able to sing and then just simply physically cannot. How, as a vocalist, do you deal with illness differently from a person who is not a vocalist? If I had more knowledge, I probably would do better at that. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of it is just the uh, the warm fluids and, and rest, uh, trying to, to keep yourself from using it in an unhealthy way because then you start to build habits that come back to haunt you as you're, you're protecting your voice and using it in a, in a certain way. Those muscles develop a memory and they come back when you don't really want them. And am I right in thinking that you came down with COVID and that affected your voice or that you had surgery and that affected your voice? 
Yeah, it was a, a surgery that I had probably eight, nine years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, had a, a neck injury and herniated a disc, and so they put me under. And it, as I understand, it was probably a, a breathing tube that they put in that, that damaged the cords. And uh, I didn't really know anything about it until I was in the uh, recovery process, and I, I went to a church service to sing. A hymn came up, and I was just amazed at the honking noise that came out. I, I couldn't carry any pitch at all. Still don't understand the mechanics of, of what happened because I, I could speak normally, but as soon as I went to sing, then the instrument was gone. And how did you recover from that? Um, bit by bit, uh, slowly. It, it took a couple of years. Um, honestly, my voice still isn't the same. Um, I lost my falsetto. I used to have a good two octaves in my higher voice. It's hard to believe that you had a falsetto. But. <laughs> I did, yeah. And, uh, and it, it's gone. And it seems a bit trite to ask this, but how does that affect you? I mean, is it a, a frustrating experience? Does it leave you kind of grieving for the things you lost? Or do you find new ways and new scopes in which to operate? Um, it is kind of a, a grieving process because it's such a part of my identity and, and who I am. Um, when I hear recordings of, of people doing like uh, multi-layered tracks and they're able to do all of the, uh, the things that I used to be able to do and I'm cut down to half the instrument that I had at that point. And so it's a constant thing of, yeah, I, I wish I could do that, but uh, focus on, on what I can do. And in, in many ways, my, my voice is stronger than it, it was at that point just because of the work that I've had to go through to, to get it back. And the higher part of my lower range is elevated quite a bit. And let's talk about some of the work that you have done. Now, can you walk me through some of the exercises that you might do or some of the, the regimen in order to keep your voice in shape and make it as strong as it is now? Baby steps. At first, as I was rehabilitating it, it was just trying to be able to hold a pitch, any pitch for more than a beat or two, and listening to the way they would bonk and just flutter and fly out of control. And uh, as a vocalist, I guess I'm kind of lucky because I can practice in the car, and that's where I can do some of my woodshedding as I'm driving <laughs> around. Uh, can't really do that with a saxophone. But uh, little bits at a time and, and finding where, where things start going haywire and then taking a break before you injure it and then come back to it a, a day or two later and just a piece at a time. And do you find within the vocal community that post-COVID, more folks are finding themselves in this situation because COVID, even with the vaccine, could be a very rough illness and take uh, various tolls on the body. So are you seeing more singers dealing with, uh, with recovery? Um, when, when we first came back after the whole uh, lockdown situation, it was something that a lot of people were talking about because... Your voice is a muscle. You have to use it, and it has to be in shape in order to get the best result out of it. And when you have that many people that haven't really done any serious singing in a year or two, the the instrument's out of shape. You can't uh, get out and run the sprint. And all of a sudden, you're in a rehearsal that's going to be two and a half hours long. Your voice gets tired, and so you bring in those muscles on the side that need to be relaxed to open up and everything goes downhill from there. And is there, in turn, a new appreciation for vocal health? I would certainly hope so. Yeah, and so we have this vocal health workshop that's upcoming, 
And if you could speak as a singer and talk about some of the things that you might find of value from a workshop like this. Your, your instrument changes over the years, and nothing really you can, can do about that. When you're younger, the cartilage is softer, and as, as you age, it, it firms, and your, your instrument changes. And so what you do as a teenager isn't something that you can necessarily can do as, as an older adult. And uh, to have an outside set of ears hear what you're doing and being able to provide some meaningful feedback that allows you to adjust your technique is, is invaluable. Um, at the, the higher end of my, my lower register over the last few years, I'd been having trouble of it getting really tense and sounding pinched. And it was uh, during an, an audition for the, the symphony chorale that I had 15 seconds of feedback from one of the directors that's made a, a huge impact and given me an, an extra third or fourth on that high end of the range. And I actually like the sound that comes out now. Alex, I want to thank you so much for coming in today and talking about this and your experience with singing, but also your experience with vocal recovery. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to come in. That was Alex Barkley talking about his decades of experience as a singer and his long path to recovery after his vocal cords were damaged. When the interview was over, he told me how he wished he had sought outside help earlier. The Cantabile chapter of the Spokane Symphony Associates hosts their vocal health workshop this Saturday, October 7th. It's being held at the Westminster Congregational United Church of Christ at 411 South Washington Street in Spokane and runs for most of the afternoon. To find out more about it, visit spokansymphonyassoc.org and look for the Vocal Health Workshop tab. As we consider vocal health, it's also a good time to reflect on health in other artistic disciplines, like Spokane's printmaking scene. Between Eastern Washington University's new Resograph Print Residency, which we covered on this program last week, and the success of initiatives like the Spokane Print and Publishing Center, as well as the annual Spokane Print Fest, printmaking is flourishing in the Inland Northwest. And further proof of that is the Rocky Mountain Printmaking Alliance Biennial Symposium, which is coming to Spokane next week for the very first time. Tom Carraway of the Spokane Print and Publishing Center and Polly Ann Burge, a printmaking advocate and event organizer, came into the studio recently to explain what the Rocky Mountain Printmaking Alliance is and why the symposium's arrival in Spokane is noteworthy. I actually would just introduce the organization this year. Um, I know they've been going for about 10, and I know that the symposium they do has been to Salt Lake City, Boise, um, Pullman, um, kind of the West Coast and kind of a little bit inner Western states here. And I'm really excited just to also connect with uh, an old friend, Caitlin Harris, who is the new RAMPA president right now. And so she had said, hey, Pollyanne, we're thinking about coming to Spokane. What do you think? And they'd already been talking to um, Ronaldo and Tom at the Spokane Print Publishing Center. And so I was just really excited to, to get involved and kind of be a volunteer and um, see what I can do to help support the cause. I'm a big print fan and, and um, did some print work um, and uh, was the executive director of a print-focused organization in Portland right before coming back to Spokane. I think what uh, Rampa is up to is really important, and I'm excited that they're bringing it to Spokane because I think Spokane is kind of in the same place that 
uh, I think printmaking is in a lot of places, which is that a lot of people appreciate it, but they don't always know what they're looking at. Um, <laughs> and so Rampa's mission of educating the public and of really foregrounding printmaking as a fine art form is something that I'm very concerned with as a founder of Spokane Print and Publishing Center, um, working so closely with Ronaldo and other local printmakers in Spokane, Mary Farrell, to really like showcase this as an art form that appeals to people and help them get to know like what it is. Because it's a very accessible art form. Um, and so I really appreciate Rampa's commitment to that promotion. And there have been, I think, about five symposia for RMPA before yeah. this. And this this is the first time that it's coming to Spokane. And my question as a layperson might be, why is this a big deal? For one thing, it's a, I mean, the Rocky Mountain <laughs> as, a, as a region is very large. And so it's drawing from a, a really vast region. Um, and in terms of art, uh, those regions are very disparate. Um, and so we're going to see a lot of really different kinds of printmaking um, and a lot of different styles of printmaking. You know, so you can have something as geometric and patterned as Jim Bailey from Azula or something as, uh, you know, surreal as Reynaldo or something as, like, just whimsical as Lars Roeder, who's doing uh, part of the shows, or Mike Sonichson from Idaho, or Mary Farrell's, like, really organic kind of free-flowing style. Um, and that they're all related, I think, is, is really just a beautiful part of printmaking, that we have all of that different possibility within one medium. Yeah. And I was going to say, too, I think as, as somebody who is a print lover, I think for me it's also being able to show Spokane what we have to offer here to a more regional context, too. People come from all over the United States, the Rocky Mountain area as well. And I think it's just exciting to show folks the Gonzaga uh, Jump Museum stuff and the SFCC stuff and, of course, the Spokane Print and Publishing. And just kind of show off Spokane a little bit, too, and learn from folks coming from other places. Those conversations, those connections are going to, of course, ripple back into where folks are at in kind of a regional um, way as well. So that's exciting to make connections and, and network a bit as well. Yeah, because I was going to say this symposium arrives at a time when the Spokane printmaking scene is kind of coming into its own and experiencing a renaissance of yes. sorts. Can either of you talk about where the Spokane printmaking scene finds itself right now? Yeah, I mean, that's this is one of my favorite subjects. Uh, I, <laughs> being able to see it from the viewpoint of uh, Spokane Print and Publishing Center, like we've been billing ourselves, like we do these little events every year and we call it Print Town USA. Um, and it started as kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, sort of like, you know, hoop vest makes Spokane Hoop Town USA, which sounds really cool. <laughs> um, and like Print Town USA sounds really cool too. Um, but it was always very like, haha. But it's really in the last few years kind of becoming that uh, and part of that is through the leadership of people like Mary and Carl Richardson and Reynaldo, um, who have such a great regional, national, international presence um, that it's bringing a lot of attention this direction. And what we're seeing is that there's a lot of printmakers here, not just in Spokane, but in kind of the, the greater Spokane and the Inland Northwest, um, who are doing some really incredible things. And so I think that coming into its own is is very real. And with events like this, with events like the annual Print Fest um, in April, with places like the SPPC, all the resources are really there for this medium and movement and just thing to really take off effectively. And do you get that sense as well as a print lover that things are really exceptionally vibrant right now? 
I do. You know, I think, you know, Tom's being very modest. He's definitely within the cohort that he identified earlier as well. And as a print lover, you know, I knew about these guys because of Bethany Taylor. When I was down in Portland, um, I was the executive director of a place called the Independent Publishing Resource Center, very similar to what folks are doing here. Um, and so I was able to meet Bethany when, when y'all were starting up here. And then I moved up here and it was like, wow, this is really starting to develop into something that I haven't seen here before. And I think this coalition of people are really exciting. And also, I do want to say something about print work as well. I think Tom mentioned earlier, it is very accessible. The price points are often accessible. And it makes me think of uh, the annual print fest that y'all put together. Tom is a big part of that. And you can walk out of there, you know, maybe spending 20 to 100 maybe even plus dollars. But you're going to have a handmade original piece of artwork coming out of there. And knowing you're putting dollars into the pockets of artists making that work. And by bringing up PrintFest, you yeah. raise an interesting point. Is this symposium kind of going to be PrintFest on steroids? Or is it something that's targeted at the niche print-oriented or printmaking-oriented audience? Or is it pretty much open to everyone? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't. It's not PrintFest on steroids, and there's a couple of reasons why. And it's what makes it, I think, accessible to everyone, especially those who are print-curious, one might say, <laughs> right? Nice. Um, in that there's a lot of panel discussions and a lot of demonstrations and hands-on things that will be happening as part of this conference um, so they can come into the SPPC and do a workshop with Sarah Windish, one of the SPPC members and a great local printmaker. Um, or they can go over to the print studio at Gonzaga um, and do a collage workshop with uh, Alexandra Yosub. What I, what I love about it, and in, in terms of what it's different from, from PrintFest, um, is that real hands-on interaction. And there's panel discussions to go to where you can hear printmakers talk about their medium and their art and why it's important not just to them, but to the community um, and what its draws are, what its uses, and uh, you know what it's what it's for essentially. And so, uh, PrintFest does a really great job of like bringing people together and showing them prints um, and putting that, that in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of takes uh, a next step and allows people to ask questions and learn more and become educated um, directly from you know these these great printmakers, professors, artists, teachers um, who are really involved in the medium. And I also want to say something that's like print has been so important in the movement around social justice, uh, you know, racial justice. I really do feel like that's something to be said is I'm really excited about what's going to be in the symposium that really speaks to that is I really feel like such a medium of people that are working class and that are really trying to get those points around justice and equity across. So, yeah, I'm really stoked about that as well. Excellent. Well, Pollyann and Tom, thank you so much for coming in today and running us through the basics of this symposium. Thanks, CJ. Thank you. The Spokane Print and Publishing Center's Tom Carraway, as well as artist and arts advocate Pollyann Burge there, talking about the biennial symposium of the Rocky Mountain Printmaking Alliance. That symposium makes its debut in Spokane on Thursday, October 12th, and runs until October 14th at locations across the city. Those locations include the SPPC, Gonzaga University, Spokane Falls Community College, Spokane Public Library, The Hive, Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture, and the Junt Art Museum. For more information on the symposium and registration, head to rockymountainprintmakingalliance.org. 
And now we shift our focus from an event that showcases diversity in printmaking to events that showcase the fine arts and cuisine from Asian and Pacific Islander cultures. But more than that, thanks to Spokane Arts Grant Award funding, these events are also equipping emigrants from those cultures with the practical tools and business education they need to be even more successful at their craft. I spoke by phone with Charity Bhagat Singh Doyle of Spokane United We Stand about this initiative and why it ties in so well with the larger mission of her community-based organization. Spokane United We Stand was started in March 2020, and it was founded because of the increase in the anti-Asian hate crimes, not just on a nationwide level, but also on a global level. And we felt that uh, bringing the Asian community, there would be safety in numbers. And so that was the, the reason why we united together. And now in that very, very short time, you have already had a, an instrumental hand in festivities like, for example, Diwali celebrations. Absolutely. And so, again, the community, just getting the community united, wherein we wanted to focus on, of course, part of our way to let the community know that we're not out there to hurt anyone was to introduce them to our culture. And we thought that doing something along the the lines of arts and culture, wherein we would host free events for the community to come and learn about us would be the way to go. And so we started with Lunar New Year. We brought it back after an 89-year hiatus, and our focus for Lunar New Year was the North Asian cultures, which would include Vietnam, Korea, China, Japan, and then for the Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Festival, our focus was on the Hawaiians and the Pacific Islanders, and some crossover with Southeast Asia. And then for Diwali, The focus was on Central Asia to include India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and Mongolia. And so all those um, countries in those regions, because we're so diverse within the ANHBI community. There's over 52 plus groups, I believe, that's represented under that umbrella. And we wanted to be able to show the distinction of each unique culture. And then in between, we host independent events that we partner with the local organizations. Like uh, this year, we did one with the Karen community, and they're from Laos and Thailand. So behind the scenes, we support the other Asian, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander cultures. And maybe this speaks to my own biases, but I think there is no better way to unite communities and diverse communities at that than through the arts and food. And Absolutely. you have applied and received Spokane Arts Grant Award funding or SAGA funding for this International Arts and Food Fest. And I would love to know more about the particulars of that. So when we were doing our events the last two years, again and again, it would come up from the artists that they would like to participate. And we sit down with them, and then I find out they don't have a Facebook page. They don't, they don't have a business card. They don't know how to put their pricing for their services. And they are, they're great artists. 
And so we've been coaching some of them to get a business license. And then I sit down with them with other individuals from the organization. And then we show them how to meet the requirements of the health department of local government. We discuss copyrights. And we wanted them to be able to participate at the farmer's markets, at all the other community events, and be prepared. So that's how this grant came about, because we just saw the need. So we're teaching them some skill set on not just how to promote their art, but also become a team player in adding substance and value to whatever event that they're participating in. And so what is this event that's going to be taking place, this International Arts and Food Fest, or IAF? Um, This is the sort of public-facing culmination of a lot of this outreach and education. So we actually started for the adobo and more, and it was a partnership with the Hispanic Business Professional Association, And then we brought in the Filipino American Association of the Inland Empire. And we wanted to start a small group just to prepare our staff and myself before I take on a bigger group. So we were able to get our visual artists, performers, and then our culinary artists all in one room. And we went through the process of marketing, kind of taught them, okay, you you have to share the post. So we're teaching them like some basic marketing and advertising skills. And then in addition to that, we went through the um, health department and we had to go, okay, this is what's required for the culinary artists. Um, And then we also wanted to get the account on how much they made because we're wanting to see the economic impact of the event. And it was a success. They all made a minimum of $600. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. And so is the Adobo event just the first in many more events of a similar nature? Absolutely, yes. So the Adobo event, we wanted to work with, I, you know, I, I told my staff, I told the HBPA, I said, I want non-English speaking artists because I want the challenge. I want to be prepared. And so they provided interpreters. Because most of these artists, English is their second language. So going to an event like the farmer's market is scary for them. And so having the interpreters there was really helpful because our goal is to help them get out of just marketing to the Hispanic community and hang out with the general population. And I think of our listeners, and someone might hear this and say, hey, this is something that I want to support. Um, Maybe they attended the Adobo celebration, maybe they didn't. What is the next event that's on the horizon that will fall under this scope? So our next event is scheduled on November 18. It is called Three Stars and Up. Um, So it's a partnership with the chefs, and then we partner with the um, performing artists. And then we also partner with the visual artists. So there's a collaboration here between, you know, art- artistically. And they wanted to do an event that was hot, like hot food. So our next event is called Three Stars and Up. And we are going to have a representative from the Hispanic community, the African community, the Asian community, the Middle Eastern community. 
and they wanted to have an event wherein they can turn up the heat and not apologize for it. Excellent. Well, Charity, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to detail this. And A, my mouth is watering, and B, um, I think these collaborations and cross-cultural collaborations are really exciting. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That was Charity Bagatsing Doyle telling us about Spokane United We Stand and the Spokane Arts Grant Award funding that organization received to organize skills-building arts events that also create an opportunity for public outreach and engagement. Their next event is the Three Stars and Up Culinary Showcase at the Southside Senior Center on November 18th. To find out more, visit SpokaneUnitedWeStand.org. And be sure to join us next week when we have our final interview with this round of Saga recipients. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. If you missed part of this episode, or you want to be sure to catch future episodes, subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli.